So, welcome back to The Weirdest Thing. This is episode six. Shut up. Seriously? Yep. That's insanity to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm Scotty Milder. I am a writer and filmmaker based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I am Amelia Ampuero. I am an actor and theater maker also based in Albuquerque. And uh, this is our podcast about weird shit that we like to talk about. Yep. So, this week we have a couple stories involving, like, what would we call them? What's the... I don't know. Well, I, I mean, the thing is, is that I think, I think the terminology is what the, what the terminology is, which sounds really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, does it? I I mean, it's like, look guys, we're going to be talking about the movie freak show, right? No, the movie freaks. Freaks. And I'm also going to be talking a little bit about freak shows, giving some historical context for it. And also talking about two stories that have really stood out to me in terms of the history of, of, uh, people who were exhibited in these shows. Yeah. I guess we'd say sideshow performers. Would that be? Yes. Circus performers. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's all, it's none of, and it's not great. <laughs> yeah, none, none of this is, none of this is great. Uh, so buckle in and get yeah. excited. Have fun, get your coffee, get your whiskey. We're going to do this thing. We're going to do this thing. So yeah, I'm talking about the movie Freaks and kind of to go along with what I was just talking about there. I'm going to, I have a few quotes in here that I'm going to read. I thought about whether I should or shouldn't read them, but I'm going to go ahead and read them. But I do want to kind of give a warning that some of the language used, because this is from the time period, 1932, that this Mm -hmm. movie came out. Some of the language used is um, archaic, would maybe be the nice way to say it. Derogatory, offensive. Um. So I'll try and give a little warning before I read those quotes, just so you guys know that this is not me talking. This is someone in 1932 talking. Right. And I think the same holds true for, for my segment as well, is that um, as, as much as possible, I'm trying to sort of modernize the right. language, but it is a little bit difficult to, to, I think it's hard to paint a full picture of the sort of impact of these things without using yeah exactly that was my thought too Um, you need to kind of understand the the historical context so yes anyway i'm gonna dive right in all right so the movie freaks um this is an infamous film from 1932 often erroneously described as having been banned it was never actually banned but it was pulled out of circulation for a long time um and i'm gonna talk about why so first, uh, just to lead us in, let's talk about the director a little bit. It's a guy named Todd Browning. And I'm going to start with a quote. This is from a very recent July 2018 retrospective from the British Film Institute, uh, the BFI. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a quote. They say, The offbeat cinema of Todd Browning offers an astonishing pulp fiction assortment of carnies, crooks, deadbeats, imposters, lowlifes, miscreants, magicians, pickpockets, pimps, vamps, vampires, and weirdos. He specialized in the outre, the macabre, and the perverse, and occasionally capitalized on the appetite for lurid stories. Browning, however, routinely tempered grotesque and transgressive elements with safe conclusions. Villains, 
nearly always received their comeuppance. Wrongs were always righted, leaving patrons to go home relatively undisturbed. Like Tim Burton or David Lynch today, Todd Browning's eccentric imagination found a home in the mainstream. His run of films with Lon Chaney played a vital role in the development of the American horror movie. Ooh, okay. So he was an interesting dude, uh, mm-hmm. was this Todd Browning fellow. And what they're saying here about him tempering the grotesque and transgressive elements and ultimately making safe movies, that all was kind of done away with with the movie Freaks. Ooh, um, okay. To the point where it essentially destroyed his career, but wow. I'll get there. Okay. So a little bit more about Todd Browning. He was born Charles Albert Browning in Louisville, Kentucky in 1880. Ugh. Um. Interesting little, <laughs> little, sorry, people from Louisville <laughs> for that reaction. Sorry, it is not Louisville in and of itself, and that's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so he was born in Louisville, Kentucky, 1880. Um, interesting little tidbit of trivia for anyone who's a baseball fan. His hmm. uncle, Pete Browning, was a renowned outfielder and batter between the years 1884 and 1894. So this is like early, early, early in professional baseball. Cool. The Major League Baseball. He played for a team uh, called the Louisville Eclipse, and he played for a bunch of other teams in that time period, including the Cincinnati Reds and Pittsburgh Pirates, which are still around today. And he, his nickname was the Louisville Slugger. And he is the source. Really? Yeah, he was the inspiration for the Louisville Slugger baseball bat. Because uh, apparently he uh, went and bought one of those bats and the company that was making the bat were like, we're going to capitalize on this. And so we're going <laughs> to call this the Louisville Slugger. It's a little bit nice. early uh, product placement there. Yeah. So Todd, or actually at the time his name was Charles, Charles Albert Browning, he was interested in performance, acting, theater, et cetera, from a very young age. He used to put on little backyard plays as a kid, but he was also really fascinated by the circus. So when he was 16, he changed his name to Todd and he literally ran away to join the circus. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I just, it's, it's like, I think, I, I think a lot of people, well, I'll speak for myself. I was fascinated with the circus. Uh, and then the more I got to know about it. It's like. That, that was quickly, those, those dreams were quickly dashed. Quickly dispelled. Well, and I think the circus like that we experienced as a kid was not the circus of this time period. Yeah. And at this time period, like the circus was a pretty shady place. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he was, he was super into the circus. Uh, so he changed his name to Todd, ran away, joined the circus. He started working as what was called a talker, which I guess is the same thing as a carnival barker, introducing uh-huh. a character named the Wild Man of Borneo. So I tried to read up on this wild man of Borneo because I was like, what the hell is this? And I'm not sure if it was the same person. It might have been someone later who also took on this name, the wild man of Borneo. Um, But the original wild man of Borneo also was known as Oofty Goofty. He was a germ. And I forgot to look up. Yeah, (laughs) Sorry. Shouldn't have said that right when you're taking a sip of tea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And I forgot to write down his actual name, uh, but he was a German-born American sideshow performer who, I think he was not deformed or disabled like many of the circus performers, which we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. So to come up with a gimmick, he covered himself head to toe in road tar, and then he stuck himself with horse hair. 
no. to make himself look like like a Sasquatch type character. Oh my god! And then they would put him in a cage, and he would like growl and hiss at the audience and rattle the bars of the cage because he was the wild man of Borneo. Right. Um. Apparently, this this was in the 1890s. This is why I think this may not have been the same wild man of Borneo because mm. this seems like it was a little maybe a little bit earlier than. Todd would have been out there working for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he apparently his Wild Man of Borneo act lasted exactly one week because he was covered in tar and that made him really sick, unsurprisingly. Because apparently you uh, can't wet through tar. Yeah. So he ended up in the hospital and they were like, well, let's get this tar off of this guy. And then the tar wouldn't come off. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, there was a reason that it being tarred and feathered was a was a yeah like punishment you, like you can die of this yes they eventually got the tar off of it sounded like they used solvents whatever i don't know what solvents of that time period would have been but probably nothing you want to rub like all over your body right i'm guessing like lie yeah and then he was like fuck this and like pretty much quit being a circus performer so but he was known also as oofty goofty because part of his act is when he was like shaking the bars he would yell at the audience he would yell oofty goofty and that was part of his uh, whole okay. persona so anyway, so this mm-hmm. is the world that todd browning was like i want a piece of this right um so then he also performed himself as a character called the living corpse mm-hmm. um where he'd allow himself to be buried alive that makes me uncomfortable and then over time he started working as a vaudeville magician a vaudeville dancer, and then, this is not great, a blackface comedian. Okay. Um, this would have been in the 19-teens, probably. Mm-hmm. While he was working in the vaudeville, he was directing live variety shows in New York City, and that's where he met D.W. Griffith. And for oh. all you people who listened to last week's episode when we were talking about Birth of a Nation, uh, D.W. Ah. Griffith was of yes <laughs> was of course the director of birth of a nation and i think this would have been maybe right before or right after birth of a nation came out he became friends with dw griffith started acting in some of dw griffith's like single reel nickelodeon comedy so the nickelodeon was like the first kind of popular movie theater of the time and they were usually just like an old storefront that they went in hung a sheet had a cheap projector would run these like single reelers Mm. Um, and they were called Nickelodeons because they cost a nickel to get in. So it was like the first instance of cinema as like a mass entertainment kind of thing, kind of before the studio okay. system had really solidified itself. And like everyone was like throwing up Nickelodeons. They would roll into town for a couple weeks and then they'd close up shop, move on, etc. So Todd was acting as a mostly in these comedies, these Nickelodeon comedies, single reels, which probably were like maybe 10 minutes long, if that. And these are being made by the Biograph Company, which was, at the time, the biggest, I guess you'd call it film studio, quote-unquote, of the time. Although the studios of that time did not look or act anything like the studios today. They weren't these big, massive behemoths like they are today. The Biograph was the biggest film studio. It launched the careers of many famous silent film stars and filmmakers like D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, Lionel Barrymore, Lillian Gish, others. Ooh, all right. Biograph was based in New York City. And when the movie industry started to kind of consolidate itself in L.A., D.W. Griffith left Biograph, headed out to California in 1913, and Todd Browning followed him. This started Todd Browning's career as a silent film actor. He ended up acting in more than 50 silent films, including some directed by D.W. Griffith. And then at this time, he started also moving into directing. 
So his first film, feature film as a director was a movie called Jim Bloodsoe, which starred a guy named Wilfred Lucas is a riverboat captain who dies while saving his passengers from a fire. And this is apparently a lost movie, so you can't watch it. Yeah, there's a lot of lost films from that era. Ah, I really feel like that needs to be an episode. Oh yeah, I thought I was actually thinking that today as I was doing this research because I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna talk about another lost film. Okay, here in a second. Directed several more films. At this point, I don't think he was acting so much anymore. I think he really had moved into the directing sphere and then in 1919 he directed a film called the wicked darling and this is the first film he did with lon cheney senior okay um do you know who lon cheney is i i i'm not i feel confused about lon cheney (laughs) senior versus is there a junior as well okay so i'm i'm not gonna say that i do know okay (laughs) so i put totally put you on the spot there no pop quiz (laughs) um lon cheney is one of the most important figures in the development of the horror film right um he is probably most known for the 1920s uh versions of the hunchback of notre dame where he played quasimodo and then also the phantom of the opera so he's the famous image of the phantom of the opera from the silent film right where she takes the mask off and he's like that dual face yes okay then yes i do know who lon cheney senior is god damn it lon cheney jr in 1941 this is just a little sidebar became famous for playing the wolfman in the universal (gasps) horror film um and then had a career that went up i don't know when lon cheney jr lon cheney senior died pretty young i think of cancer lon cheney jr he was acting all the way up into there's a movie from the late 60s called spider baby which is like one of the weirdest horror movies you're ever going to see and i think that was either his last film or one of his final films isn't there something too about like didn't lon cheney senior do like all of his own Mm -hmm. makeup and stuff yep that's pretty cool yeah, he was very famous. He, he, so he not only was very important in terms of horror movie acting, because he was a star in these films, but he did all his own makeup. And he, with, along with a guy named Jack Pierce, are really kind of considered the forefathers of like the modern horror movie makeup artist. Cool. Jack Pierce did the Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, did the Wolfman. That's what he's probably most known for. Okay. Lon Chaney Sr. did all his own makeup for... He, he was famous for his, he would carry around his um, makeup case. And that was like part of his like persona. Like they would show him <laughs> in magazines with his makeup case, you know? So he was, and he was actually known as the man of a thousand faces. Um, okay. I should do a whole episode on, on, on the Cheneys because they're pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a lot of uh, meat on that bone as yeah. we've been starting to say. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Right. But so he did this movie called The Wicked Darling with Lon Chaney Sr. And this began a long collaboration with Lon Chaney. They did a bunch of movies together. But around this time, Todd Browning, unfortunately, his father died, which led Mm. to a a deep depression, apparently. Mm. And so he developed a drinking problem. He also got fired. He was working at Universal at the time, got fired by Universal, and then his wife left him. So it was just like, boom, boom. Oh, man. Okay. So poor guy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so his career was really on the rocks. But then Goldwyn Pictures, which later would become MGM, mm-hmm. they hired him on a one-picture contract to do a movie called The Day of Faith, which I don't know anything about. I've never heard of that one. So here's some of the movies he started to become very well-known for. And one thing that Todd Browning, as his career kind of took shape, and he started really developing his own voice as a filmmaker – he kept returning to themes around circus performers, sideshow mm. performers, etc. And one of his big goals, 
stated goals. And I'll talk about how this is a little complicated as we get into the movie. Was he really wanted to humanize the sideshow performers and be like, they're not quote unquote freaks. These are people. okay. Because okay. he was friends with, the, you know, he had spent his formative years in circuses around <clears throat> sideshow performers and had become friends with a good many of them. Mm-hmm. So it was important to him to treat these actors with respect, not just treat them as spectacle. We'll talk about how successful that is or isn't in some right. <laughs> movie. You get to the movie Freaks. Okay. Um, so one of his early movies, probably his first movie about sideshow performers was a movie called The Unholy Three uh, from 1925. It starred Lon Chaney. It was about a group of circus performers, including a ventriloquist, I think a hypnotist, and then a little person who start using their, you know, moving from town to town and the circus is a way to like rob rich people. <laughs> um, and it, so it's really like a crime keeper film. Okay. Uh, but it was, it was sort of notable because it was one of the first films to really treat these sideshow performers as humans with agency and their own desires and et cetera, mm-hmm. not just as a like, look at that kind of thing. Right. Okay. I've never seen The Unholy Three, uh, but apparently it was a big influence on the development of horror films and of film noir, like as you get into the 1930s and 40s. He really was revolutionizing like use of trick shots to create special effects illusions. Like apparently there's a a three-foot chimpanzee in the film that with trick shots he makes look like a giant ape monster. Oh, um, okay, cool. And this was this was all sort of new to f- cinematic language at the time. And it was a huge success. So it really kind of put uh, Todd Browning on the map. And then he did a movie that I have seen called The Unknown from 1927. And this is like one of those weird movies. Like when you go back and watch these silent films, you know, they seem so dated and so stylized that it's like mm-hmm. really hard to get sucked into them. But this is a movie like, it's genuinely, a, I found it a genuinely disturbing, psychologically disturbing film, even though it's a silent mm-hmm. film. It's about a circus thrower again, or a circus knife thrower, again played by Lon Chaney, okay. with no arms, who's obsessed with a woman, played by a young Joan Crawford, actually, Ooh. I think in one of her first roles. And he is developing this relationship with this woman, and she has a phobia of men's arms, and she doesn't want to be touched. So she's sort of also got the, I think it's like the circus strongman has also got a crush on her, but she's like, no, your arms, your arms. Right. And meanwhile, but she's like, I feel safe with you. Alonzo, I think is the character's name. The guy with the knife thrower with no arms. Uh-huh. The catch is he actually does have arms. It's a trick. He like ties them up under his vest and she doesn't know that. So she goes off and he's like, runs to the doctor. He's like, he cut my arms off because he wants to be with her. Right. Um, so he has his Ooh. arms amputated. She comes Ooh. back and is like, hey, guess what? I got over my phobia of arms. No. I'm going to marry the oh circus strong <laughs> And he's just like, head explodes. And so then it turns into this thing of him essentially trying to have the circus strongman character killed. And it's a weird movie. And it, and it is, I found it, I remember watching it probably when I was in film school, although I don't think mm-hmm. I watched it in an actual class, a film school class, but I remember watching it around that time and it got under my skin um, mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't expect from a movie of that time period. Here's a quote on it uh, from that same BFI retrospective article. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, the unknown is a sublime fusion of sadomasochistic imagery, male self-loathing, misandry, 
castration symbolism and nightmarish irony. Browning and Cheney concocted their films in experimental fashion. They began with a character concept and then built a narrative. Mucking around together with makeup effects and dreaming up all sorts of unpleasantness, they settled on a thief who pretends he's an amputee. Only once he's fallen in love with a woman who cannot bear to be touched, he bribes a doctor into performing drastic surgery. Oof. Yeah. Can um, you, real fast, can you give me the definition of misandry? Now it's my turn to give you a pop quiz. So misandry, my understanding is that is essentially the opposite of misogyny. So it's like hatred of men. Okay. And there's definitely like arguments about whether misandry is a thing or not, whether okay, it actually like, even exists. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure plenty of people on Twitter would be happy to debate that with you. Oh, yeah. And it's like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm not interested in that debate, so leave me out of it. <laughs> so please, please don't email us. <laughs> I'm just quoting an article from the BFI. It's not me. <laughs> so that's that film. You can watch it. I just looked it up today. It's online. You mm. know, like I think it's on YouTube and stuff like that. Okay. And then probably one of Browning's most famous films is a movie called London After Midnight from 1927 Mm -hmm. so this is another lost film uh yeah amazing uh the prints were destroyed in this epic 1965 mgm vault fire that like just it's like a famous fire that just destroyed all these old films that are like (sighs) will never be seen again and there's definitely been a a move out there to see if anyone has any weird print of this film like tucked in their grandma's attic or something Mm because this is one of those films that like people have been dying to find for Mm -hmm. decades now it's really famous for the makeup done by lon cheney i'll post a picture on our social media okay it's like he's he's sort of this vampiric character although it's not a vampire film from what i understand it's more like a crime film but he's got this top hat and like a like a kind of cloak you know sort of dracula like Uh and then sort of longish hair and then this like crazy grin with like pointed teeth okay Um, it's a very famous image because it's people know it from like movie stills and stuff but the movie doesn't exist anymore um but it's been said and i wasn't able to like confirm this i kind of googled around for a while but it's been theorized that the look of his character in that movie was a direct influence on the look of the babadook from that movie okay years mm-hmm. Ago. Mm-hmm. so and, and when you see the picture of him it you're like yeah i can see that <laughs> you're like this this isn't a theory yeah it's that, that's, the, that's the that's babadook, the babadook. yeah <laughs> <laughs> Now, the movie, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because everyone knows this movie. Okay. But the movie he's absolutely the most famous for is Dracula. He directed the Bela oh. Lugosi Dracula in 1930. Oh, okay. This was his biggest hit. That, along with James Whale's Frankenstein, started the whole mm-hmm. boom of the universal horror film, which kind of went from like 1931 to sort of the mid-1940s. Like the last great universal horror movies sort of generally considered to be The Wolfman, which was 1941. Okay. Uh, this was Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, et cetera, et cetera. I think Frankenstein might have actually come out first. I don't remember. But Dracula and Frankenstein both were just massive hits. Dracula, I got to Frankenstein's a pretty great film if you've never seen it. Um, mm-hmm. Dracula kind of sucks, I'll be honest. It's, you can tell it's got the problem of a lot of early talkies where like, you know, the microphone was like hidden in a, like a flower pot and they're all okay. kind of talking and like <laughs> leaning into the microphone so that they're, 
and the camera never moves or anything. Um, okay. <laughs> so like, it's not, I think it's not a great film. Uh, okay. Personally, probably the most, you'll appreciate this. Okay. The most interesting thing about Dracula is that while they were shooting the Todd Browning version during the day, the English language version, they would go home at night and then this other film crew would come in and they shot a Mexican version, um, Spanish language version, specifically mo- with Mexican actors, mostly for the Mexican audience. And it is so much better. It is really? Such, it's such a better uh, film. I mean, because of course it is. <laughs> you can tell it's just like the studio didn't give any fucks about their movie. Mm-hmm. So they were just like, let's just do what we want. So right. it's like, it's much sexier. The camera is like real stylized and moving around. And like, it's just a lot. It's just so much more fun. The performances are better. Dracula is better. Like, oh, I, I, I should have looked it. up. I should have looked up the, the name of the actor who played Dracula. Uh-huh. But he is so much better. Um, can we get, can we get some side by sides for yeah, social media? Okay. It's, and it's and it's famous for like you know the the English language versions very like Victorian England and all right. the women's dresses are like up around their chin and right and then in the Spanish language versions just like plunging necklines and like, oh yes yeah um, they knew they knew what everybody wanted right so it's uh, if you ever need feel the need to go back and watch old school Dracula skip the Bela Lugosi one and go find <laughs> go find the Mexican slash American production. I'm Dracula. I'm fascinated with this. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it now. Okay, yeah. fantastic. So Dracula, huge hit, huge hit. Even at the time, I mean, it's iconic now, but even at the time, it was just it was a massive phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Well, MGM, you know, this was you know, Dracula was made over at Universal. It was one of the, like I said, the forefathers of the Universal horror film. Um, well, MGM was like, ooh, we want a little bit of that. And so let's start our own line of horror movies. Okay. to compete with the uh, Universal films. And so they were looking to like snatch up some of that talent. There was a short story from 1923 called Spurs by a guy named Todd Robbins. And I've read the story and it's interesting because this is the basis of Freaks. Now, notably in the short story, the villain is the little person, uh, husband of the main character in the okay. short story. It's reversed in the movie. Um, so I'm going to read the plot description. This is from IMDb. It was written by some dude named Rick Gregory. Um, okay. <laughs> I, don't know who, I don't know who you are, Rick, if you're listening. Uh, but I, I did like your synopsis. It was one of the more fun ones on there. Okay. <laughs> um, it says, a carnival barker displays a sideshow freak called the Feathered Hen and tells her story. Cleopatra, a trapeze artist with the carnival, was adored. And again, this is where some of the language is like not great. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cleopatra, trapeze artist with the carnival, is adored by a midget named Hans. Frida, Hans's fiance, also a midget, warns Hans that Cleopatra, Cleopatra is only interested in him so that he will give her money. Mm-hmm. Cleopatra has an affair with Hercules, the circus strongman, and when Frida lets it slip that Hans is to come into an inheritance, Cleopatra and Hercules devise a plan to get the money by having Cleopatra marry Hans, the little person. Okay. During the wedding reception, though, Cleopatra is openly romantic with Hercules. She's accepted by the, quote, freaks, uh, Uh but is revolted and mocks them. The freaks decide that they no longer need Hercules in the carnival, and they have a new career for Cleopatra all lined up and make sure she doesn't, quote, chicken out. So basically what happens is Cleopatra (laughs) 
and Hercules. I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. Yeah. And I'm also like my, my biblical vengeance part of oh. me is like, yes. Oh yeah. Okay. And it is, it is biblical in this film, uh, which Ooh, is yeah. partly why <laughs> the movie, oh, we'll get there. I don't want to okay. But basically what happens in the film is so Cleopatra, the beautiful trapeze artist, starts seducing Hans, the little person, mm-hmm. the, because she finds out he's going to have an inheritance. Mm-hmm. And then after the wedding, she and Hercules start poisoning Hans to mm. kill him. Mm-hmm. I, d- I don't remember. There have been a lot of different cuts of the film. I, I can't mm-hmm. remember if Hans dies. I don't think he does. I think they discover the evil plot beforehand. But once it's discovered that this murder plot is about the, quote, freaks, chase down like they they kill hercules famously castrate him in a scene that was deleted and then they chase down cleopatra and then so it goes back to the carnival to barker which is the like the framing story you know where Mm -hmm. he's like let me tell you the story about this crazy freak and then it's like the crazy freak is cleopatra who's had her legs and arms cut off has been tarred and feathered and turned into a chicken woman so the last shot, like it goes to her and she's just like covered in feathers going bark, 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 like, you know, like a chicken. Uh, and then that's, that's. Thank you that, for clarifying. Yeah. Like, <laughs> thank you for clarifying that that's what those sounds were. Yeah. I wasn't g- great with my chicken noises. But, <laughs> um, so anyway, in the short story Spurs, which was the inspiration for mm-hmm. the movie Freaks, the husband, the little person husband, Hans, is actually the villain. Okay. Because he marries, I don't think the character's name is Cleopatra in this story, mm-hmm. uh, but he marries this beautiful woman who then makes a joke at their wedding reception that she could, and I'm not sure if this is a quote from the from the story itself or if this was like a paraphrase in the article I read. Mm-hmm. This is, carry the little ape on my shoulders from one side of France to the other. Like this is the joke she makes about her husband. Mm-hmm. And so Hans, out of revenge, basically has her chased by wild dogs while he rides on her shoulders and is making her carry him across the length of France. And wow. then she goes to her like former lover. Who's like the circus strong man. who's like, please save me. And then Hans rides up on his like wolves or whatever and like kills the strong man and then makes her keep carrying him. So it's just like diametric, diametrically opposite theme wise. Right. And I think it's interesting that that got flipped upside down yeah. because I think that sort of shows that Todd Browning wasn't interested. He didn't want to do this like the freaks are actually freaks and evil kind of story. Right, right. this sort of like, yeah, exploitation. Right. So I think there was an attempt to, from the start, do this more sympathetic portrayal. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that he got involved with the movie is that actually uh, an actor and circus performer, a guy named Harry Earls, um, who was a little person. He, and he ends up playing Hans in Freaks. And he also, he met Todd Browning when they were making The Unholy Three, which if you remember oh. was the movie about the circus performers who become robbers. Right. He was one of the characters in that. So he and Todd Browning became friendly. And then Harry Earls read the story, Spurs, took it to Todd Browning and said, hey, we should turn this into a movie. Because Harry Earls was like, I want to act in things. And this would be like an actually a good performance where I could actually like play this real character. So Todd Brownings took the story to MGM and said, Hey, can you buy the rights to this? And so they bought the rights to it. And then, but I think they like were slow rolling it for a long time. Cause like, we don't know if we want to make this movie. And then he right. went over to universal dead Dracula, huge hit. Okay. So MGM's like, maybe we can get this Todd Browning guy back and we can start our like 
our own competitive horror movies. And so getting Todd Browning at that time was kind of considered a coup because he was like the hot, the hot director at the time. Mm -hmm. So they were looking to cash in on the success of Dracula and Frankenstein and start their own line of horror films. Freak was supposed to be the flagship film. And so this led to an unprecedented level of creative freedom for Browning. You know, at this time, directors kind of did what they were told by the producers Mm -hmm. and the studio, Uh, but they really kind of let, Todd Browning did what he wanted. The only thing they told him is they wanted a movie that was more horrifying than Dracula. And this came back to bite them. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So there's, there's a film critic. I've read, I haven't read this book, but he's a film critic, film historian, a guy named David J. Skull. He's mostly known for writing about sort of classic horror films. He has a book specifically about Todd Browning called dark carnival. And he tells Mm -hmm. a story where basically it was like a lesson for the producer Irving Thalberg and being careful what you wish for. Uh, <laughs> because he had said, I want a movie that's more horrifying than Dracula and Todd Browning like goes away, writes the script. is like, here's the script. Irving Thalberg read the script and then reportedly hung his head and said, well, I asked for something horrible and I guess I got it. So on top of giving Todd Browning all this creative freedom, they also were giving him a certain amount of freedom in casting. And at, and at first, they were really wanting to get some big stars. So Todd Browning, I've read this several times. Apparently, originally wanted to cast Lon Chaney uh, in the film. I don't know what character Lon Chaney would have played because I, I, I don't know if he would have played Hercules the Strongman. It's not mm-hmm. like a real Lon Chaney type of role. Role, right. Know? But apparently, uh, Chaney died. I think he had esophageal cancer. He died before the film went into production. Okay. They also went to Myrna Loy, who was mm. big, big starlet of the time. Mm-hmm. And they asked her to play portray Cleopatra. Well, she was under contract with MGM. And the way that worked at the time is if you were a contract player, you kind of, again, you kind of did what you were told. Right. Like, we're going to put you in this movie. Here's the script. Go make the movie. Right. She read the script and was so horrified that she actually went to Irving Thalberg and literally begged him not to make her make the movie. They ended up deciding, I think, both to, because they were having a hard time getting anyone to agree to be in the film. Uh-huh. And also, I think, from what I read, Irving Thalberg had decided, hey, let's save a little money on this. And also, maybe we can build a mystique around this, these being like real circus performers, quote unquote, if uh-huh. we hire unknown actors. So they hired a Russian actress named Olga Baklanova to play Cleopatra. Um, okay. A guy named Henry Victor plays Hercules. And then you have uh, Harry Earls as Hans, the little mm-hmm. person. They also interestingly cast his sister, Daisy, as Frida, who was the other love interest for him in the film. Okay, creepy. A little creepy. Interesting thing about the Earls siblings, Harry and Daisy, is that they're actually part of a pretty famous performing family of little people mm. called the, quote, doll family. Mm-hmm. There were four of the seven children in this family were born with, I guess, a hereditary pituitary disorder that caused mm-hmm. dwarfism. So these four siblings all became circus performers and then moved into making movies. And they were all in The Wizard of Oz. They all played munchkins in 1939. Oh, okay. Interesting. And then Daisy was interestingly a bit of a sex symbol and again let's apologize for the terminology here but she was known as the quote midget may west okay um, but so they were both in the movie freaks but aside from them todd browning also he wanted to cast actual sideshow performers 
mm-hmm. didn't want you know to do a lot of like movie makeup stuff he was like no and, you know and then i think there's something like i'm not sure it worked out that well to be honest but i think there was something honorable in his intention of like no we want these people to be seen as like right people. right and it's sort of like questions around <laughs> representation who gets to represent precisely and, yeah precisely um so some of the some of the performers that he got was a woman named Josephine Joseph, who when I say woman, I, I should probably be a little careful with that. Josephine Joseph claimed to be intersex. Okay. However, there's very little I was reading up on this, there's really no evidence to say she was actually intersex. Okay. They think she was a woman who this was like her gimmick. But she claimed to be intersex and then she played like the divided like half man, half woman. Uh-huh. Where like one half is a man and then split down the middle of the other half is a woman. Mm-hmm. So that was Josephine Joseph. You also had one of the most famous sideshow performers of the time, a guy named Johnny Eck, known as the legless man. Okay. So uh, Johnny Eck was born without legs and the lower half of his torso. So basically stopped like at the trunk. And so he had to move around like he, he walked around on his hands. Is, is he the one that there's a shot of him crawling out from under the wagon? I believe so, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. That, that's, I don't know a lot. I don't have a lot of, like, I haven't seen the movie or anything, but it, there's that, that image is, is very clear in my mind. Yeah, and, it, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, we'll post a picture of uh, Johnny Eck, too, because he's, like, everyone will recognize him. Everyone's seen pictures of him. He was very okay. famous. He had a condition called sacral agenesis which was a congenital disorder where basically it's like a disorder in the development of the spine and abdomen in fetuses. And sometimes apparently it's very minor and you almost don't notice it, but then sometimes it can be very major. Like Mm. he was born without legs. His career started. I I just thought this was an interesting little story. His career started when he was 12 years old. He went to see a a magician Mm -hmm. and the magician was like, can I have a volunteer? And Johnny Eck, 12 year old, he was like, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then he goes up there on his like hands with no mm-hmm. legs. And the magician was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> um, but then was like, Hey, you should join my act. Right. And, you know, cause and, you can do a lot of, you can probably do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. So 12 year old Johnny Eck joined up to be this magician's assistant. Well, Johnny Eck also had a fraternal twin brother. So they looked exactly the same, except Johnny didn't have legs and his brother did. Um, so they had a, a famous act that I just love this because it's, it's just like perfect trolling of the audience. Yep. <laughs> and I think he was actually working for a different magician at the time, but they performed this magic feat that just like blew people's minds. So basically it was like a sawing a man in half kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it would start with the brother, Robert, who would pretend to be a member of the audience and start heckling the magician. The magician would be like, why don't you come up here and like, you know, do this trick with me, whatever. And he'd be like, whatever, and get up and get up on stage. And he would do the sawing the man in half trick. But at some point there'd be a switcheroo where Robert would be replaced by Johnny. Mm-hmm. And then the legs part would be they would get a, another person with dwarfism, a little uh-huh. person, to be the legs. And like, so it looked like the legs were disembodied but could still move. So he would cut the person in half. The legs would get up and run off into the audience. Okay. And Johnny would like come out of the box and be like, hey, I want my legs back and like go after them on his hands. And the audience apparently lost their fucking minds. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty brilliant. It's it's a it's it a is. pretty brilliant trick. I I, kind of, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, for sure. 
Yeah, I'd probably, I, it's weird to think about, because there's a lot of stuff now, right? Where you're like, okay, I get that this is an illusion and, and I'm like, there's certainly there's a trick to it and stuff, but it's, it's always interesting to me to think about how these things were received by audiences when they were being seen for the first time. Yeah. And, and yeah, it had to have been like, I mean, I feel like if I saw that altering today, it would blow my mind. Cause it's just like the, like everyone's seen the song in half trick and then he like opens the thing and the legs are over here and then right. puts it together. No, she's fine. It's the running away bit that really it's the, is. Like the legs get up and run and then the guy's kiss. like, Hey, come back. And like literally yeah. <laughs> the legs into the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yep it, it's pretty it's a i'm like i read that and i was like good for you johnny act like fuck with those people <laughs> you I know good it. on you good man on fuck you. those audiences and apparently when they're making the movie freaks johnny and todd browning became super tight friends okay. and i think they stayed friends for a very long time some of the other performers there was probably the other most famous one in the movie was someone named prince randian who was known as either the human torso or the human caterpillar okay um he was he was guyanese born and he had something called tetra amelia or amalia syndrome okay. which is another congenital disorder and i think it might be genetic but i i don't don't quote me on that but okay. basically you're born without hands and or like arms and legs okay it's very rare but he had this and he became known for his ability to roll light and smoke a cigarette all with his mouth. And he does it in Freaks. There's this long shot of him like rolling a cigarette, gets it in, gets the match, scratches it on a log. And, you know, like he does the whole thing just with his lips. Ooh. And it's, to me, like that's my favorite part of the movie because that's like, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, that's, that's not a cinematic trick. Like that's right. dude with no arms or legs fucking rolling and lighting a cigarette. Like that's, amazing. That's some fucking skill. And then this one makes me sad. Uh, there was also a woman named Minnie Woolsey who played Cuckoo the Bird Girl. Okay. So she was born in Georgia with something called Seckle Syndrome, which is also called primordial dwarfism. It, it causes dwarfism, mm-hmm. but it also causes a proportionally very small head, a very mm-hmm. narrow face, and a large nose, which gives someone kind of a bird-like appearance. It also okay. causes intellectual disabilities. So unfortunately, Minnie... And Minnie was completely bald. She was essentially blind and she was intellectually disabled. And whoever her guardians were, her parents, whatever, dumped her in a mental institution where she okay, was. Okay, let me, let me be clear here because I'm making a lot of like sad, sympathetic sounds. None of this is like, it's because I knew that was coming. Right. You know, I knew that like her no. story was not going to, and then she lived happily ever after no. and she had a really full life. It's because I knew it was going to end with her being dumped yeah. in a fucking institution. Yeah. It, that's the part of this that is the most sad to me is she was dumped mm-hmm. in, in this mental institution where she was quote unquote heavy air quotes around this rescued by like a traveling showman, like a, who was like, I want this person to be in my sideshow. And so right. started sticking her in sideshows. Mm-hmm. as cuckoo the bird girl mm-hmm. um or like she would literally wear like a dress made of feathers and stuff oh. and i what makes me sad about her is just like i you know she had no you know like with johnny eck it's like he kind of chose 
kind of chose this. And it seems like everything I read about him is like, he had a pretty good life. He had a good time. He was kind of famous. But with her, it's just like, she had no no choice in any of this, I don't think. Right. Um, and that's a, that's a thing that I don't really talk about it. I, I think I touch on it very briefly in mine, but that is a thing that, you know, when you're discussing these shows needs to be brought up because there are, like for some of for for some of these people, it was going to be the only way that they could earn a living. Exactly, and it was it was an honest way for them to make a living, and and you know, okay, they had the they had some agency at least to be able to to consent to this, and then there are untold numbers of others that, that had no say exactly. for whatever reason. Now I don't know that much about her. I don't know how the rest of her life went. You know, like things mm-hmm. might have been fine, but just just the start of the story just doesn't feel good. Yeah, I do know that she did. She continued performing up into the 1960s when I think I believe she passed away in the 1960s. Wow! So this is real upsetting. This part. Oh great! So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> buckle up. Apparently, while they're making the film, the people they were shooting it on the studio backlot at MGM in LA. Okay. And the fucking employees at MGM were like, we don't want all these freaks around. I don't want to have to look at all the freaks. Like, people were real upset about this. Apparently, Louis B. Mayer, who was the studio boss, like, walked by the set, saw all these performers, and was so, quote-unquote, disgusted by their presence that Mm -hmm. he threatened to shut the movie down because he just, he wanted to get them off of the lot. Um. (sighs) Apparently, also employees were angry because they went into the commissary, which is like the cafeteria, and saw these performers in there eating. And we're like, we don't want them in here with us. So Irving Thalberg, the producer, worked out a quote-unquote compromise where the quote-unquote normal actors like Olga Baklanova, Henry Victor, etc. Right. Were able to eat in the commissary, but then the sideshow performers had to eat in this tent that was like back behind the set. Just uh, makes me so fucking mad to read that stuff. Um, uh, not surprised. Okay, goes okay, great. Get ready for my story because yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just gonna be a whole lot of, of that. dehumanizing degradation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's it's um yeah, that was that was real upsetting to me when I read that. Um yeah. and also not at all surprising. Not at all surprising. <sighs> yeah, um, unfortunately. Unfortunately not. So the movie was shot over 24 days uh, at the MGM lot. It was budgeted at $200,000. The budget ended up increasing to about $300,000 by the time they were done. That -hmm. would be about $5 million by today's standards. Mm -hmm. So probably not like a huge budget film, but you know, decent Mm -hmm. sized budget. Here's a quote that I found kind of upsetting. This is from Olga Mm. Baklanova talking about both Todd Browning and her Mm co-stars. And here's the thing. It's like, she means real well in this quote, Uh-oh. but let me just read it again. There's going to be, uh, this is her talking. This isn't Scotty talking, but this is what she had to say. She says, Todd Browning. I loved him. He say, I want to make a picture with you, Olga Baklanova. Now I show you with whom you're going to play, but don't faint. I say, why should I faint? So he takes me and shows me all the freaks there. First, I meet the midget and he adores me because we speak German and he's from Germany. Then he shows me the girl that's like an orangutan. Then a man who has head but no legs. No nothing, just a head and a body, like an egg. Then he shows me a boy who walks on his hands because he was born without feet. He shows me little by little, and I could not look. I wanted to cry when I saw them. They have such nice faces, but it is so terrible. 
now after we start the picture, I like them all so much. And it's like, you can tell she's not trying to be an asshole, but like, it's so condescending and gross. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And I'm sure we're getting more to that in your story. So, (laughs) so the movie was finished. Then they're like, let's go have some test screenings. This is where everything, this is where the wheels came off the wagon, so to speak. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So they went to screen the movie and the test screenings were an absolute catastrophe because people freaked the fuck out. Right. This is a quote from the art director of the film, a guy named Merrill Pyle, who said, halfway through the preview, a lot of people got up and ran out. They didn't walk out, they ran out. Now, it it is possible that some of the stories might have been publicity stunts, but I'm not sure because it sure seems like MGM genuinely panicked after this reaction. Oh, okay. Uh, For instance, one woman who was at one of these test screenings threatened to sue MGM because she claimed the movie caused her to have a miscarriage. I feel like that happens at every scary movie, that they're like, I was so scared. And I feel like, I don't know, there's a part of me that like... if it is if it is not true that really resents that as being like this was so awful that it caused this woman to miscarry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and here's here's and, my theory and, on that mm-hmm. is I actually think it's possible. No, I don't think the movie caused this woman to have a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. I do think it's possible she had a miscarriage mm-hmm. and she decided to blame the movie. Well, it became like a public thing. Mm-hmm. And then so, like you said, this is something that comes up. In like later films, I yeah. think because of the story around freaks, it became so infinite, infamous. That's when it became a publicity stunt later. Ugh. That that would be I don't know this for sure. That would be my right. Guess. Right. I sort of suspect it wasn't a publicity stunt because MGM freaked the fuck out about yeah. about these test screenings. So they entirely panicked. They chopped up the film. They edited it down from ninety minutes to just about sixty minutes. So cut a half oh. hour out of the film. So some of what was cut from the film was the the scene of the performers attacking Cleopatra, turning her into the chicken woman. That was removed. They also removed the scene of Hercules being castrated, as well as a later scene of Hercules singing in a falsetto voice, which is like, wah, wah, you know. <laughs> he got no balls. <laughs> um, okay. So those those scenes were cut and then they were lost. So no one knows what happened. So like if you watch the movie now, you're not going to see Hercules getting castrated because that stuff's in the dustbin of history. Right. Um, probably burned in that MGM vault fire, actually. Mm-hmm. They also uh, made Todd Browning shoot the opening scene with the carnival barker being like, look at the chicken woman. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last shot of the chicken woman so they made him shoot this book in and then they made him give Hans a happy ending where Hans and Frida, who was again, played by his sister in real mm-hmm. life, get back together. And then they end up together. in The end. The movie was released in February of 1932 and just tanked like Ugh. one of those epic box office bombs. It ended mm-hmm. up, I think making just over a hundred thousand dollars. And remember it was a $300,000 budget. So it like made a third of its money back. Yeah. Um, and it just sparked controversy everywhere. The theaters in Atlanta refused to show it. It was banned in the United Kingdom for more than 30 years. And then when it was finally released in the sixties, they gave it an X rating. It was critically savaged. Oh. Like critics hated it. And it was kind of like this twofold criticism. There was definitely critics who were like, how dare you exploit these 
poor sideshow performers for mm-hmm. this crass, you know, product. Mm-hmm. But people are like, this is real gross that you're making me look at these sideshow performers. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, it was just awful all the way around. Yeah, everyone, everyone sucked. Yeah. So yeah, uh, like for instance, here here's one review. This is from something called Harrison's Reports, which I looked mm-hmm. it up. I guess it was a movie trade journal of the time. Okay. Where they said anyone who considers this entertainment should be placed in a pathological ward in some hospital. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the Hollywood Reporter said outrageous onslaught upon the feelings, the senses, the brains, and the stomachs of an audience. And then this one's pretty gross. Uh, This is from Variety at the time. They said, here, the story is not sufficiently strong to get hold of the interest, uh, get hold the interest, partly because interest cannot easily be gained for too fantastic a romance. The story does not thrill and at the same time does not please since it is impossible for the normal man or woman to sympathize sympathize with the aspiring midget. So fuck you, Variety. Eat a dick. (laughs) Um, and then here's a quote positive review okay (laughs) yeah this is from luella parsons uh who's famous i think mostly known as a gossip columnist at the time Mm -hmm. but she says for pure sensationalism freaks tops any pictures yet produced in freaks there are monstrosities such as never before have been shown if you are normal go and see them for yourself and if not well use your own judgment so fuck you what the fuck does that mean No, I mean, all these people fucking suck. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, MGM, because of their fucking geniuses and all this, they're like, we're getting some bad reviews. So, let's, like, let's, you know, mitigate these bad reviews and let's come up with this new tagline, which is, what about abnormal people? They have lives, too. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So, again, 1932, people. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Golden era of American history there. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately MGM was like fuck this they pulled the film from Elise before it mm-hmm. finished this run and that was the first time they had ever done that they just pulled it out of theaters and then years later they ended up selling the distribution rights and just like washed their hands of it. I'm surprised it survived honestly well here's how it survived okay so they sold the rights to a dude named Dwayne Esper and I, I, I didn't take the time to look up what his story is but it sounds like he was like kind of a fly-by-night film distributor guy and so he was like road showing the movie with like a whole bunch of other cheapy like b movies as part of the early grindhouse circuit and also the drive-in movie circuit so it started getting like it would be shown in like 1950s like as the second feature okay second build of a drive-in kind of thing okay and then it kind of got discovered in europe the 1960s so i won't go too deeply into it but the 1960s was an interesting time in french cinema it was the start of the french new wave Mm -hmm. so that's where you get filmmakers like jean-luc godard Mm -hmm. francois truffaut people like that and part of the whole french new wave was like trying to be transgressive break all the rules stuff like that Mm -hmm. the french new wave were also very interested in like taking a verite approach you know, like sort of showing okay. life as it is kind of thing. So they really respected this film because it showed actual sideshow performers. There was right. no trickery. So it started really developing a following in Europe to the point where it had a special screening at this 1962 Cannes Film Festival. And that's when its reputation really started to like be rediscovered. Mm-hmm. A little too late for Todd Browning, unfortunately. We'll get oh. to that. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
And then so finally in the U.S., critics began to reappraise the film. So here's a guy named John Thomas who uh, in the 1964 edition of Film Quarterly, he called it a minor masterpiece. I think that's a little overstated. Personally, okay, but, but um, well, let's give it some love because it's, yeah, been, it's been shat on. Yeah, exactly. And then it, it sort of started getting, this was interesting. There's an there's a author that, I think I've mentioned him. I might've mentioned him on this podcast before. A guy named Kim Newman, who's a, he's a British film critic, but also a novelist. Maybe. Uh, yeah, he wrote basically, if you want to read the greatest series of vampire novels ever written, read okay. the Anno Dracula series. Yep, 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 yep you Newman. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he basically talked about how Freaks, the movie, was kind of rediscovered in the 1960s and then really embraced by the counterculture. Because mm-hmm. the counterculture was like, we're the freaks, man. We like totally had this kinship with the freaks, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay. it really, it, yeah. pump the brakes. Yeah, pump the brakes. Counterculture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take a shower, hippie. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's some fucking dude who was like, I was in fucking Woodstock. I peed in a field. <laughs> yeah. Um. How dare you? <laughs> um, but yeah, so it really it started to become a cult film, uh, but it was, wasn't actually released on VHS until 1990. Mm. And I remember being in the eighties, like already freaky, weird little horror movie kid mm-hmm. and reading about this movie. Like, okay. um, and being like, I remember going to the, the, it was called the film festival. It was the local video star up in Los Alamos. And I would always like wander over to the horror section. And I remember looking like, where's this freaks film I keep reading about? I never could right. find it. And then around 1990, it was released. Cause I remember going to the film festival and it was like a brand new VHS copy of freaks. And I was like, yoink, oh. went home and watched it and was solidly disappointed. Um, <laughs> Cause I don't think it's a great movie. Spoiler alert. But yeah, so, it, but it really did start to become this, this cult film. Now here's where I think, so, you know, it went from people being like, how dare you put these quote freaks in a movie? Mm-hmm. And also how dare you exploit these poor people to mm-hmm. like, Hey man, like, you know, we're the freaks, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like counterculture <laughs> acceptance. And also, you know, being really, you know, like there's a critic, a guy named Andrew Saris called it one of the most compassionate movies ever made. And I'm kind of like, pump the brakes on that because I've seen the film and it is certainly not that I think Todd Browning's heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. I think it's still exploitive when you watch it. Here's a quote again from that BFI retrospective article where they're basically saying freaks is not the end all be all of Todd Browning films. And then here's what they say is the problem with it. And I think I agree. They say deep down, it may be that Browning was actually as repulsed as he was moved by the physical disabilities. Freaks is far from humanist or body positive, but it is sympathetic. But then what to make of Browning's films that draw distinct visual and psychological associations between disability and villainy. Mm. And so I think Freaks is an interesting film. Also, I think it's just not a great film largely because it's very obvious that the studio interfered. Uh Like you can just feel like, oh, there's whole chunks missing out of that film, you know? So it just really kind of doesn't hold up. But I think what makes me squicky about it is there's this critical discussion around it. Like I said, this Andrew Saris quote where it's like such a compassionate film and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, it's a complicated movie. Right. Like I think it's a movie that's trying to be compassionate and still falls into some kind of ugly tropes. Right. And so it's like, I'm not going to say it's like not worth watching, but let's not like, let's, 
let's let's not go too crazy with how 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 much of a humanist Todd Browning is. Like I think, right. I think his heart was in the right place, but right. Well, it seems it seems like you know this. There's a there's a difference in approaching people who might be like differently abled who fall outside of the 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 quote unquote norm like there's a difference between doing something that is like hey this is a celebration of these people and this is to like you know again to show that like they're you know contrary to popular belief they are humans and they have full rich lives and and all this stuff and something that views them through a sort of like pitying lens exactly exactly and i think that's to me that's that's a big part of the problem is i think you feel a lot of pity when you watch the film yeah and you know it gets to that question of like who gets to tell whose stories Mm -hmm. you know todd browning was not a disabled person he was not Mm -hmm. a deformed person and yet he kind of took it upon himself to tell this story and i think he really meant well yeah he still treats them in the end as freaks in the film they're still essentially depicted as freaks now i do have to wonder how much of this goes to things being cut and chopped up and screwed over by the studio so there may have been a version of the that really was the version that he was trying to make right i just don't think the version that exists is is that, that. yeah but it is often referred to as his best film it's generally agreed to be better than dracula which i would agree okay. i think his best film is that one i was telling you about earlier uh the unknown with the mm-hmm. armless knife thrower Mm-hmm. Um, of the movies of his I've seen, I think that's the one that is the most, that holds up the best. And then another little, you know, just about the pop culture legacy of this movie, uh, the Ramones, one of my favorite bands, mm-hmm. uh, became famous for taking a couple quotes from the movie and kind of turning them into catchphrases. So Gabba Gabba Hey, if anyone's a Ramones fan. Okay. Gabba Gabba <laughs> Hey. And then One of Us, One of Us. Those are, yeah. Those right. Are, those are from the movie Freaks. Because that's about the scene where Cleo, at the wedding reception scene where Cleopatra is like being welcomed into the fold by uh-huh. performers, sideshow performers. And she's like, ew, gross. But they're basically saying, you're one of us. But, but that's one of those scenes where I think, weirdly, the movie actually ends up putting you inadvertently on her side. Mm-hmm. Because it, it is treating them as like freakish and weird. You know, yeah. so it's like chanting, one of us, one of us. But the Ramones, like they kind of reclaimed it. So good for them. Good for them. Um, now, after, let's talk about what happened to Todd Browning. Okay. Uh, poor, poor, poor guy. Poor guy, Todd Browning. So, Freaks failed, and it basically destroyed his career. Ugh. He was like the hot director of the time. Just came off of Dracula, which was a huge hit. Did this movie and was done. He did make a few more movies, but he was pretty much consigned to just doing, like, director for hire B movies. Mm-hmm. Um, low budget things. Uh, never again was given the kind of creative freedom that he'd had before. Probably his most significant film of his late career was a movie called Mark of the Vampire from 1935, which was, in fact, a remake of his earlier London After Midnight, which is the last film I was telling you about. Okay. So he, after 1939, he did not make any more films. And then he died in 1962, which is ironically the same year that that Cannes Film Festival screening happened. <sighs> So I kind of like hope he was at least alive enough to like read the notice about like, hey, Can is showing your movie, you know? Yeah. I don't know, I don't know that for sure. So, so that is the story of Todd Browning and the movie Freaks. Yay. Yay. 
just so you give you guys a little peek behind the scenes we had a little debate before we started like who should go first and amelia was like i don't know i mean my story's kind of a downer and i was like (laughs) so is mine mine. so you know enjoy guys yeah have a good time let's get started on my depressing ass shit so um (laughs) (laughs) uh so to sort of go along with with scotty's story about the movie freaks i like i mentioned a little bit earlier i thought i'd go ahead and sort of uh talk about the sort of historical and cultural significance of freak shows and uh sort of more importantly i wanted to tell the two i wanted to tell the stories of two women of color who were very big freak show side show attractions and talk about their lives a little bit because i think it's important to to know who they are uh so freak shows are like just to to give a nice little overview here they are exhibitions of biological rarities they can be physically unusual humans people that are uncommonly small or large people who have extraordinary diseases or conditions, people who exhibit like intersex variations. And then you have people who who they have sort of chosen that as their life. And that is people who are like excessively tattooed, who mm-hmm. are excessively pierced. Then that's also when you start bringing in people like fire eaters and sword swallowers and, and, right. and all of that stuff. Uh, of so course, the latter. Like borders into burlesque a little bit right yeah and 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 you know the it would seem that the 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 latter performers would would have a a bit more agency in their exhibition than than others part of freak shows were things that were called human zoos i'm also going to give a bit of a uh i don't know if a trigger warning is the right word for this everything that i talk about is is really dealing with a part of history that to me is, uh, and I'm of course, I would assume of course to Scotty and hopefully to our fine listeners, um, is, 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 uh, a pretty disgusting side mm-hmm. of humanity. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to explore that and to sort of try to understand why those things were happening in the hopes right. of not repeating them in the future. So human zoos, uh, Ugh. were just, just that <laughs> term. I'm like, oof. Yeah. Popular in the 19th and 20th century, they were public exhibitions of humans, Mm -hmm. uh, usually in an incorrectly labeled natural or primitive state. There is a part of me that can understand the morbid curiosity of seeing people that were born with conditions, deformities, and that kind of a thing. The problem with human zoos is that a lot of it was just seeing people from other cultures and countries and being like look how weird they are and there was nothing weird about them they just lived lives that were very different from the norm um so it was like they were quote savages or something yes at 100 so these displays often emphasized uh cultural differences between european and non-european peoples or with other europeans that practiced a lifestyle that was deemed more more primitive all of these shows were highly degrading highly mm-hmm. racist just so that uh europeans don't think we're trashing them solely these human zoos also existed in japan where they would show off like korean and taiwanese people and oh. Like, oh, you know they happened in the u.s there was a, a human zoo in cincinnati that basically 
invited, I'm going to use that in somewhat heavy air quotes, a uh, hundred members of Native American tribes to come and basically like live so that people could be like, Haha, look how look how funny they are living their lives. Um, something to understand about all this stuff is that all of this is based on the variation from normal, quote unquote. Right. Uh, these, these exhibitions have a foundation in scientific racism, a pseudoscientific belief that empirical evidence exists to support or justify the belief in a superior race. Yeah, and this gets into like phrenology and stuff like that, right? Eugenics, yeah. like all of that stuff. All of that really just god-awful part of, of humanity. Scientific racism was actually super common until the end of World War II, which I would assume we can probably all understand why maybe yes. at that point people were like, let's press pause on yeah. the superior race. As, as, a, as a Jew, let yes. me say, I'm glad we pressed pause on that. I'm not sure right. how successfully we've pressed pause on right. that. Right. Well, 100%. We and, and, you know, would have seemed that maybe, you know, the, the, the chattel slavery industry might have also brought an end to that, but it, it didn't. So uh, it was after World War II that uh, it was formally denounced by the scientific community. So up till World War II, scientists were like, you know, there's some merit there. Like, this all makes Mm -hmm. sense to us. After World War II, scientists, the majority of them, were Mm -hmm. like, this is pretty shitty. So maybe let's not do this. Yeah. Good call. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Good, good job, science. Uh, so it's now commonly understood and agreed to be absolute bullshit. Of course, there's still some racists who use it to validate racism, white supremacy, and the idea of inferior and superior races. Right. Scientific racism aimed to classify races and traits based on mainly the physical traits of non-Europeans and the sexual and religious practices of these people. All of these things were things that were used to be like, see, these people are savages. These people are not evolved. These people are inferior. It's rooted in the sort of unfounded and subjective idea that white Europeans were superior due to pale skin, straight hair, Christianity, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I say unfounded because they were literally the ones who decided that they were the superior race. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, which is... Is I, I'm sorry if you are a white supremacist listening to this podcast. One, fuck off. And two, like you, yeah. you, you can't call it for yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. And how'd you make it six episodes in? And <laughs> well, and it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting you say that these human zoos existed in Japan as well, because I don't, I'm not an expert in this, so I hope I don't get this wrong, but I do know that like there was a reason why Japan allied with the Germans because there was a lot of those same kind of racial superiority ideas were existing yeah. in the empire of Japan at that time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, in so the it's Spanish... not surprising to me in that. Exactly. Sense. Yeah. And the Spanish were doing it to the, to, to people from the Philippines. And right. I mean, you know, the, there's always going to be people that are like, Oh, I think I'm, I'm better than you because of, mm. because of this. And honestly, you should get a life if that's what you're focusing on. Yeah. I feel like maybe this is because I spent a lot of time looking into the stories of these two women because I am a female-bodied person and I identify as a female. It seems like all of this stuff was extra heinous on female-bodied people. Oh, I'm um, sure it was. Yeah. 
anything that fell outside of the the white, slender, demure ideal was considered to be savage, lustful, exotic, mm. bizarre, and monstrous. There are a lot of people who talk who talk about the hypersexualization of specifically black men and black women. All of that has roots in this. And you know, of 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 people from different different races, different cultures, different ethnicities and all that stuff. It like Europeans like really wanted to get in there and and look at other people's genitals. So different attitudes, different different cultures attitudes about sex, nudity, relationships also were considered evidence of animal-like savageness. Again, the heavy air quotes around that because it's bullshit of non-white non-Europeans. There was no attempt to understand the different cultural parameters of these people it was just like oh you're different that's fucking weird yeah so let's put you in a cage and let's put you in a cage yes it also upheld the belief that these people were of lower intelligence um Mm -hmm. and experienced less pain which is a belief that still exists within the medical like modern medical practice today um especially in regards to women of color specifically black women Mm. regardless of all of the con evidence to the contrary yeah this is I think in all of this, in, in, in the six episodes that we've done so far, this is the show that the research for it both saddened me and enraged me the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, of course, not the type of thing where I was unaware of these things, but spending, you know, several days yeah. with this information. Well, yeah, I mean, even like I knew, I knew the broad outlines of what I was going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But like getting into like the nitty gritty details of how the people were treated on the movie lot, yeah. like, you know, that was something that like, it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to immerse yourself in it and really yeah. realize how terrible this yeah. shit was. Yeah. And also, you know, like I, I, uh, I welcome the... I welcome the brief discomfort because I know there are other people who are living this 24 seven. So I understand my, my privilege in that as well. Uh, All of these things were things that gave Europeans the belief that they were right to, in their own minds, invade, colonize, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, civilize these people. Notable scientific racists, uh, <laughs> Francois Bernier. Uh, I don't care if I'm saying his name wrong. Uh, he was the father <laughs> of scientific racism. Richard Bradley, Carl Linnaeus. He labeled five varieties of human species. This motherfucker went through and basically categorized the different races, including one which was like mythical humans that included like the like Patagonia giants and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like, these people are phlegmatic. These people are choleric. These people are lazy and sad and fat. And these people are hypersexual. Of course, there was his description of the white people that were lovely, intelligent, Mm -hmm. calm, Christ-like bullshit. I didn't Um, remember his name, but I 100% learned about that in like high school history class. uh To be fair to my high school history teacher, it was definitely presented to us as like, get a load of this bullshit. Nice. It was not Not like, like these (laughs) these are the actual types of... Patagonian giants that once exist. Like that was not the, right, right. That was not the approach. It was more like, <laughs> hey, let's talk about like the bullshit 
stuff people used to believe. Talking about why it was 100% wrong. Bullshit, yeah. yeah. Charles White, who believed that white people and black people were literally different speci- species. Mm-hmm. Christoph Mainers, Miners, I don't know, whatever, uh, who believed and spread the lie that the white race was beautiful and the black race was ugly and felt little to no pain. Mm-hmm. I, that in like that enrages me because like i said black people and and specifically black women are having they're dying because they're not getting the medical attention they need right. because the the bias within the medical community is such that that they they still inherently believe this to be true even if they are you know fucking yeah. enlightened i mean what world. is it the, the the mortality rate of black women giving birth is is, is exponentially higher than white yeah, women. Sky, yeah, sky, sky high. And and yeah, it's and it's awful. He also believed that uh, he disgustingly believed that black people had a sad lack of virtue, terrible vices, perverted sex drives, etc. Founding father and famous asshole Thomas Jefferson was also mm-hmm. a scientific racist and Arthur de Gobin Gabineau, Gabineau, who was so racist that his ideals were the foundation of modern-day white supremacists and were instrumental instrumental to the master race theory of Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he's a real asshole. So good job, dickhead. Yeah, good job, dickwad. Uh, and Charles Darwin is in, in there as well. For a maddening and illuminating rabbit hole to fall into, uh, you all can check out the Wikipedia article on scientific racism. Mm-hmm. All of this hinges on the confusing of common versus normal. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, green eyes are not common, but they're normal. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of what was going on here is that white people were like, well, everybody around here looks like white Europeans were like, everybody around here looks like me. So you, with the darker skin and the darker body type and the different hair, you are not just that you're not common for where I am. It means that you are a deviation from Mm -hmm. natural order, which is just disgusting. Yeah. So freak shows, uh, back to them, they exploited the uncommon under the banner of the abnormal. Mm -hmm. They go back to at least the mid 1500s, very popular in Europe. Freak shows gave European and American cultures a way to view non-conforming bodies. And they felt these audiences that by paying to see these quote unquote freaks, they had been given permission to compare themselves favorably to the people being displayed. Mm -hmm. Today, there are theories this was actually fascinating and I wish I'd been able to find some more on it, but there are people today who theorize that freak shows in human zoos were pornography veiled as scientific curiosity. I mean, that kind of makes sense. 100% makes yeah. sense. And I saw it in a couple of places that people were like, this was Victorians being like, oh, I'm very cultured. I'm going to go check this out. But they were just ogling naked bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah, like, 100%. It's like when the movie Deep Throat came out in the 70s and all the like suburban moms were like, let's go check out this um, new <laughs> film defer, at the Like, Yeah. <laughs> 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 at the Cinematheque. Um, 
Yeah. So I was very, very interested in that. And what also 100% makes sense. One of the women that I'm going to talk about a little bit later on, there was a guy who wrote like a vivid, detailed account of, I think he saw her more than once, um, a, a vivid, detailed account of, of seeing her and what she looked like and all of this stuff. And it later came out that this guy was like a fucking like sadomasochist. He was mm-hmm. like, had some weird, like, like working girl fetish. Listen, buddies, people out there, I'm not here to kink shame. Um, but like, you know, like fly that flag proudly, you know, and do it with people who are consenting adults. Yeah. Don't be a fucking creeper about it. Yeah. 100%. There is, like we talked about a little bit before, there's wide disagreement as to whether these exhibitions were exploitive or empowering for the people on display. So the first person that I'm going to talk to you about is a woman who is known as Sarah Bartman. She's also known as Sarchi, uh, which was a diminutive, a Dutch diminutive of Sarah. Her name is spelled S A. R-A. Sometimes there's an H at the end. Sometimes there is not. The last name is spelled B-A-A-R-T-M-A-N. The spelling is Dutch. This woman was, uh, Sarah was a South African Khoikhoi woman born, she was born in 1789. We have no idea what her real name is. Okay. Like it's, it's been lost. And was this, I don't know the history. Was this like, were the Dutch already like, colonizing South mm-hmm. Africa. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. yeah. Due to the objectification of her body, she was exhibited in European freak shows under the name. I'm going to say this word. It is now widely considered to be a derogatory term. I'm going to say it and explain why. Here we go. So she was exhibited in European freak shows under the name the Hottentot Venus. Mm. Hottentot is what the Dutch called the Khoi people. Mm-hmm. And like I said, is now widely considered to be an offensive term. Yeah. So that'll be the last time you hear it. I will say that I first heard of that term because I think it was in 2013, 2014, Kim Kardashian did that break the internet picture. Mm-hmm. Of her, where she's got the champagne flute balance, right, right. and people were making comparisons between her and right. Sarah Bartman using that that title, and I was like, "What is that?" And I went to start, I went to look it up, and became fascinated with this story. Um, yeah, I ju- I remember that Kim Kardashian picture just because I remember photoshopping my face onto it and posting it on Facebook. If <laughs> <laughs> oh I could. <laughs> Oh my god, I completely forgot about that. If I can find it, maybe we'll uh, add that with our social media. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh my god. Woo! Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Oh God. Thank you for that bit of levity in this uh, in this story. So uh, Sarah was born in 1789. Her entire early life, along with her real name, are are lost to history. We won't know what they are. In 1810, she travels to England with Hendrik Caesars and William Dunlop. Dunlop is a British doctor. It is unknown if she went willingly or if she was forced, though mm-hmm. it is, we can probably extrapolate that she was not in a position to refuse either way. Yeah. Once they were in England, Caesars and Dunlop put her on display for money. The reason is because Sarah had an accumulation of fat on her buttocks known as steatopegia. Steatopegia. It is not at all uncommon if, if you look her up, you will see her body type and you will be like, I feel like I know, I know 
people who look like that. Yeah. But I guess it was at the time. Dunlop correctly thought that he could make money by exploiting Sarah because of Londoners' lack of familiarity with African people and bodies. They pejoratively perceived her form and I'm 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 certain they came to some type of conclusions about what type of person she was based on her figure. <sighs> this part is very hard for me. When she was put on display, um, I have I, I think that this is this wasn't stated in every single thing that I read about her. However, I feel like there were also several sources who didn't want to get into the kind of like disgusting and demeaning yeah. details of it. When she was put on exhibition, the way that the admission cost worked was if you wanted to look at her, you would pay a price. If you wanted to touch her, you would pay a higher price. Oh. And if you wanted to touch her more intimately, you paid even yet a higher price. Oh my God. Yeah. It's awful. It's, yeah. So in England, the Slave Trade Act of 1807 was already in place by the time Sarah got to London in 1810. Um, So her exhibition ended up being protested by abolitionists and specifically a group called the uh, African Association. And they actually ended up taking the matter to court in November of 1810. Bartman was questioned for like three hours. Dunlop produced a a written and signed contract Mm -hmm. All of this is called into question by the fact that Sarah did not come from a culture that they, they, they didn't have a written language. Mm -hmm. So the fact that she was able to sign her name is super questionable. Very suspect. 100% suspect. And so unsurprisingly, the court ruled that there was no wrongdoing and that Sarah was completely aware and, and um, agreed to being exhibited by, you know, of her own volition. Yeah. In 1814, Sarah is taken to France and unbelievably things go downhill for her from there. Mm-hmm. Um, she's sold to an animal trainer and he shows her under even worse conditions for 15 Oof. months in the Palais Royal. All of this is justified by the racist view, the racist views of the time. French scientists were curious about her genitals and their deviation from again, quote unquote, normal. And they these science <laughs> these scientists in fucking quotation marks said that they were proof of her sexual primitivism. Mm-hmm. Several scientific paintings were made of her, although Everything that I read about her said that she refused to be painted nude. They tried to like even pay her more money and she was mm-hmm. like, no. She had a like a small garment that she wore that covered uh, the things that, the body parts that were sort of culturally sacred to, to her and mm-hmm. her people. So yeah, this is all fucking terrible. On December 29th, 1815, Sarah Bartman dies at just 26 years old. Her body is dissected, but not autopsied. The Museum of Natural History in Paris applied to get her corpse as it was a singular specimen of humanity. A cast is made of her body. The cast and her skeleton are put on display. There's rumors that her brain and her genitals were pickled and also put on display. But again, that's not something I found in every source. They are displayed until 1974. Oh, wow. When people finally start to think that maybe it's a little fucked up and degrading to women, <laughs> Just like yeah. not her, women in general. Yeah. In 1994, South African President Nelson Mandela made a formal request to have her body returned to South Africa. Good. Uh, 1994 is when mm-hmm. Mandela is like, hey, can we get her body back? France finally agrees to return her body in March of 2002. 
Her remains were repatriated to her homeland and she was finally laid to rest on August 9th, 2002, over 200 years after her birth. That's, I mean, good good job. Good job. (laughs) Way to to get on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that is the story of Sarah Bartman. Now I'm going to talk about somebody named Julia Pastrana. Julia Pastrana was born in 1834 in uh, the state of Sinaloa, Mexico. She was an indigenous woman and she was born with a genetic condition called hypertrichosis terminalis. uh, And that meant that her body and face were covered with straight black hair. Okay. Additionally, her nose her nose and ears were unusually large and she is also thought to have suffered from a rare disease called gingival hyperplasia which produced thickened lips and gums Mm. again of course details about her early life are unclear this probably also along with sarah bartman and probably pretty much anybody else who suffered the same fate this was probably not an accident but if the details of their early lives were missing the people who were managing them aka owning these people could you know alter the narrative to whatever would get more butts and seats yeah well not you you can create this like mystique around how exotic this person is by making up some bullshit backstory but also it seems like a way you can like obscure how you came into contact with this person and how 100 in your care care quote unquote (laughs) ownership whatever we want to call it. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's precisely right. So there are a lot of theories about her early life. Uh, Some of them include that she belonged to a tribe called root diggers. There is no fucking way that the name root digger is not that one, that there's no way that it's real. And two, there's no way that it's not real fucking racist. Mm -hmm. Um, It was chosen specifically to appeal to white Victorian minds that this was a tribe of people that were dirty, lazy, bloodthirsty, had animalistic sexual, they were animalistic sexual savages, blah, 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 blah. This tribe was said to be more ape-like than human and and living in caves. Now, so there's there's like, that's a theory. Um, There are people from her village that were like, you know, she was, she was, like a member of the community and she lived with her mom until her mom died. And then her uncle sold her to the circus. Yeah. Every theory about her has her spending at least some time living at the, uh, the governor of Sinaloa, Sinaloa living in his, in his home. Not really sure what she was doing there. Some, I think there are some stories that they say that she was like a servant, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. There are some stories that say, uh, going along with the, the root digger story, that she was liberated from her tribe by a woman who'd been kidnapped and uh, took Julia with her when she escaped from the cave. Okay. Um, yeah. So at some point in all of this, Julia comes to the U.S. and she marries a man named Theodore Lent, who, of course, you know, graciously took over managing her career Mm -hmm. and of course her money. Um, And then the two toward the U S and Europe, Julia was like reported as being generous, sensitive, smart, charitable. She claimed that Lent loves me for my own sake. Mm. I mean, I'm skeptical, but I don't know, maybe. Well, sadly. (laughs) Okay. I should let you finish your story. Uh, way to try to be hopeful. I know. I was and I'm about to dash all that. Any ray of sunshine in this hole. 
Not at all. Uh, so sadly, it seems that to Lent, the marriage was much more about controlling her career and her mm-hmm. money than anything yeah, else. That's what I would have thought. Julie was advertised as all of the following, a hybrid between animal and human, the baboon lady, the dog-faced woman, the hairy woman, the ape-faced woman, ape woman, bear woman, and I don't know why this is the saddest one to me, the nondescript. Mm. Yeah. I just, yeah. Unlike Sarah Bartman, who was just put up on display and like, you know, people could like touch her and poke her and stuff. Julia actually, inter- like she had an act. She would sing mm-hmm. and dance and she interacted with the audience, which is how there was all these stuff, people that were like, she was she was generous and charitable and smart and, and all of that and stuff. And when was this? Remind me, what was the time? Uh, she was born in 1834. Okay. Yeah. So she was repeatedly examined by doctors so that the evaluation, Evaluations from these doctors could be used in the advertising uh, of her. Doctors said the following awful things about her okay. that she was the result of a human and orangutan mating, oh, God. that she was a distinct species. Francis Buckland said that she was only a deformed Mexican Indian woman. Okay. Um, one did her the solid of being like, no, she's a human. Yeah. Mm. You know, okay. and, you know, notable scientific racist Charles Darwin uh, actually yeah. examined her case after, after her death. I want to so, know more about, I'll have to look, uh, look it up, I guess. I want to know more about Darwin's scientific racism. I mean, it doesn't well, surprise me. Yeah. But. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's basically all like, you know, it's like, there's a lot of like survival of the fittest and yeah. natural selection. And, and, yeah. uh, and I think, I was about to say just, it's not just, but I think everything is coming from this place of like, well, you're different and, you know, you haven't started building buildings with bricks and stuff yet. So you must be more primitive, savage, more primitive, 100%. Yeah. So while on tour in Moscow, Julia gave birth to a baby boy who also had hypertrichosis. Okay. Her baby boy died two to three days after being born. And Julia suffering from postpartum complications dies five days later. After her death, her husband, Lent, sold both her body and their baby's body to a professor at the Moscow University who had them taxidermically preserved. After that, Lent then repurchased the bodies so he could take them out on tour again through Europe. So everything I was trying to say about this guy, like, fuck you, dude. Yeah, yeah. This absolute dick splat of a man later found another woman with Julia's condition, married her, renamed her as Zenora Pastrana, and and toured her under the story that she was Julia's sister. Uh, Lent became wealthy off of that exhibition. Of course he did. Only good news. Here's a little bit of something for you. The 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 biblical <laughs> uh, vengeance uh, silver lining in this is that Lent reportedly was committed to a mental a mental institution in Russia and died there. Mm-hmm. So there's what that. Was it we were saying about a politician recently where we thought we were hoping his <laughs> anus prolapsed. Yes. But I this is what I hope happened to this guy. <laughs> hope it like rotted and fell right. Same. Yeah. Same. Julia and her son's bodies were exhibited around the world in museums, circuses, amusement parks, etc. for over a hundred years, touring the U.S. as late as 1972. Mm. 
Her exhibition started to be protested later that year in 1972, and it finally led to the bodies being removed from, from public view. In 1976, a bunch of fucking hellspawn douchebags broke into where the remains were being stored and they vandalized her son's body and left the remains out. The remains ended up being eaten by mice. Julia's body was stolen in 1979. At that point, it was reported, it was like reported and brought like somebody was like, there's a body here. Like there's a taxidermied yeah. body here. And so the police went and got it, but they didn't, they couldn't identify her. They didn't, oh, they didn't, yeah. they didn't know who she was or what she was or um, like why she'd been taxidermied, anything like that. Uh, but so they kept her body at the Oslo Forensic Institute. So this is Norway where okay. this is taking place. Julia's remains were finally identified in 1990, and she was returned to Mexico to be laid at rest in her homeland in 2013, 23 years after she'd been identified. To end this on a bit of a brighter note for everybody, uh, so it's not such a downer, Sarah Bartman has become an icon in South Africa. There is a Center for Survivors of Domestic Violence, as well as South Africa's first offshore environmental environmental protection vessel and they have both been named after her oh um i like that yeah 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 that's 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 a little bright spot well Um, too you know better late than never i guess right but just so that we don't end uh in a place where we want to throw ourselves off a cliff if you want to read a modern uh a wonderful modern and current article about Sarah. I'm going to invite you guys to check out hashtag epic fail when Jezebel wanted to make uh, Sartre Bartman relevant to millennials by Nilika Jawardne. It was written, it was an article that was written in response to when that picture of Kim Kardashian came out. Mm -hmm. Somebody on Jezebel wrote a very problematic article. Wait, a, a problematic may- article was published on Jezebel? Hold on, hold on, hold, hold on. on. Hold the phone. <laughs> <laughs> they were not cautious and careful with their reporting. Whoa. They're going to fucking, they're going to be like, who are you? We <laughs> yeah. did a podcast. Um, <laughs> and that may actually have been the article that I read that referred to her as uh, with, with the, v- the Venus. Okay. Um, yeah. Part of the thing with this, that like, which again is sort of the thing that drives me nuts about all this, is if you look at any civilization's Venus sculptures, they look they look like Sarah Bartman. Yeah. They they look like any non-white European female form. Mm-hmm. But I think that article was the article that I read where I first saw that term and then started looking up information about her and. Nilika Jayawardene, I think that's how you say her name, Jayawardene, wrote a really thoughtful response to this Jezebel article because Jezebel was kind of trying to put it as like, Sarah was, you know, like this, you know, she was a fucking feminist and she was able to like make the choices to go and do this and earn her living. It's it's real. Maybe do a little more research before you post that. Perhaps so. Eh, You know, and there's, there's, there's the tricky stuff in there about comparing a woman who was objectified and and um, and degraded and putting her, you know, sort of in the same breath as as Kim Kardashian. Yeah. If you'd like to read more about Julia, you can read an in-depth article that came out in 2013 when her body was returned to Mexico and you can find that was that's a old New York Times article. Okay. That sounds yeah, that Yeah. That's it. I'm... That's all I got. <laughs> No, I mean, it's awful. 
It's it's amazing. I remember, I definitely remember going to the state fair here in Mm -hmm. Albuquerque and they Mm -hmm. had a quote freak show. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember what was in it because this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. I I can tell you what I saw when I was in there. Okay, go for (laughs) it. When I went to go see it. So they had a couple of animals. I did see Hercules, the world's biggest horse. Oh, I okay. I did. I remember Hercules. Yeah, mm-hmm. a big like Clydesdale type right. horse who did seem like, like massive, like a dinosaur, basically massive. Yes, I did not see her, but there was a like world's smallest woman, and she was set up in this little thing that was basically like a. I mean, it almost looked like they'd gotten the the science fair like poster board type of thing, mm-hmm. and they had her on the other side of it. I didn't go watch it because it. Honestly, it made me a little sad, but uh, my best friend at the time did, and she walked around, and I could see, <laughs> could see my friend, and she's like looking, you know, into the exhibit, and then she just sort of like waves very <laughs> like, yeah. hi, and then she comes out, and I was like, you know, what was going on there? And she was like, what was this? It was this very tiny woman, and I was like, what was she doing? And <laughs> my friend said, well, she was sitting on the chair, and he eating a burger and I was like okay all right well so there's that and then this was my favorite and I remember this so like the details of it are so clear because I was like what the fuck is this (laughs) because (laughs) I don't remember the name of the exhibit but the story was that it was this woman who was a supermodel she was the most famous supermodel in the world and she'd gotten into an awful car accident and had been beheaded in the car accident and scientists and doctors (laughs) created a computer brain for her that kept her alive so you would like read yeah so you would like see all the stuff all and like the whole story is told like on the on the side of the exhibit as you're like waiting in line and it's all in like you know like sort of carnival painted you know it's all paintings like there's no photographs. There's nothing. It's just mm-hmm. paintings of the story. <laughs> and then you get up there to see her and they open the curtain. And it is this, it looks like a real doll. Like it looks like a sex doll. <laughs> yeah. She was fully clothed. I think she was in fact wearing like a leopard print bikini uh-huh. um, because she was a model, obviously. Oh, and it was a whole thing about how she'd been able, she'd, she'd been kept alive for 10 years by the miracles of, of science and technology and all this stuff. So you get up there, the curtain opens. It looks like this real doll sitting in a chair in like a leopard print bikini and then on like where her head like there's a little bit of neck and then sitting on top of the neck is something that basically looks like I mean it's like a beep boop 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 (laughs) type of like science machine you know (laughs) and there's like lights and and wires and stuff coming out of it and they would occasionally like really be like i mean i feel like it was like beep, boop, 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 like <laughs> sounds and stuff and, and there's like a dude who would come in and like read a, a paper that was coming out of some type of feed you know it was like her her fucking stats or whatever yeah and so she's sitting in this chair and every now and then you would just see like a finger kind of like wiggle or her toes would kind of move but that was the only movement <laughs> The funniest thing to me, and part of the reason why I'm like, I remember this so clearly, is that she had scrapes and cuts on her. But the thing was, is that the car accident had happened like 10 years ago. So, so it makes no like, sense. What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember, um, I remember Hercules the horse for sure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I went to one that was like the world's biggest cow or something too. Uh-huh. 
I remember it wasn't that that you're saying, but it was something similar. It was like, look at the amazing blah, blah, blah. And then you go in and it's like a mannequin with like a wolf head on it or something. You're like, what the fuck yeah. is it? And then I do remember, I don't remember if this was at the um, the one in Albuquerque or if this was at like another circus or fair that I was at at some point. Mm-hmm. But it was like, come see the amazing bearded woman. Mm-hmm. And I went in and it was supposed to be the bearded woman. And there's this actual live woman saying they're talking to you with a beard that was so obvious. It's like you could see the spirit gum like no, no. away. <laughs> she's got one of those like Santa yarn beards yeah, on. Yeah, it was and like, she's like that Hello, level. Uh. <laughs> and she's just like, how are you guys doing? And we're like, good, good. Yeah. Like my money back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know. guess at that point they were sort of trying to keep the whole thing going, but we're like, you know, this is the 80s, 90s where maybe we're maybe finally figuring out that we shouldn't have actual people on display. Yeah. So they're just like making up fucking bullshit. Well, and that's this kind giant of the, horse. Right. And that's kind of because I know that there was there was also a woman who I think was like billed as the snake woman. And I think she was just I think she was uh she was just simply hypermobile. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, like I she think I remember that. Yeah, she could like undulate and and do all of those things. Probably and, like double jointed or something. Yeah. yeah. And and like I don't know, it's a hard it's a like I I don't know enough about that life to be able to like concretely say that people like that the tattooed people the pierced people that they're not being exploited I I hope that they have more agency than than people mm-hmm. like Sarah and Julia did and and the people that you talked about in your story but I don't know well it's, like like going back to my story like I said I think and I could be wrong about this but from what I read it sounded like Johnny Eck uh, the legless. Mm-hmm guy i think he had a fair amount of agency i think he kind of made it work for him i think it was really a right. choice for him and there's stories about what is his name it's like general tom thumb or colonel tom oh thumb yeah or who was part of uh pt barnum's whole uh like human menagerie and that you know i mean that guy met kings and presidents mm-hmm. and and stuff but i think still like like didn't have any money like i don't know if he I, if he had money of his own, I don't know if he was free to leave whenever he wanted. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. It was a, again, it's not like I was like, I thought humanity was beautiful before I did the research for this story. Like not in any way, but when you got then, yeah. And it was, it's right now I'm sort of torn between feeling like, you know what? It is, it is a good reminder to, Mm -hmm. to occasionally touch base with the, atrocities of humanity because let lest we lest we forget them right right? um and the hope would be that we would continue to evolve and i I think that's actually i think that is actually the thing that is is enraging to me is that these these people are subjugated and 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 degraded and and torn from their lives and, and treated treated like animals by a group of people that were supposedly the the more evolved yeah exactly humans and and like it is the 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 lack of of self-awareness in that and you know it's sort of excused by like well they did like you know they were really under the impression that people of like different cultures like they weren't as evolved Mm -hmm. they were they were closer to animals and i'm like i wouldn't treat an animal like that right well, I mean, it's like, you know, you read the stories of, and I believe he was sort of forced into being a circus performer for a while, but John Merrick, you know, the elephant man, mm-hmm. 
I mean, you read the stories about how that guy was treated through his life. Right. I mean, it's horrifying. Right. And that was the thing. I think when we first started talking about this episode, I was like, oh yeah, I could do Sarah Bartman. I could do uh, John, John Merrick, right? That's his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know what? We've, we've, we've heard a lot about, about John Merrick and he is yeah. also a fascinating and tragic. His story is fascinating and tragic, but I wanted to put a little bit of attention on, on women of color mm-hmm. uh, for this particular story because there, there was no way that they were able to really, truly, honestly oh, have, no. have agency no. um, in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and it is like what you said about people actually being treated worse than animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that I've thought about as a horror writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think about like horror archetypes mm-hmm. um, it's actually something Stephen King has talked about is you know there is you know, the freak is a horror archetype yeah but what does that mean it, it goes back to what you said it's, it's making the uncommon deviant mm-hmm. and I think part of why people allowed themselves to get in a psychological space where they justified treating these human beings so poorly is because you know, it's one thing when it's an animal, like even if it's like the world's largest horse or two-headed cow or whatever, there's like a level of separation where it's like, it's still, it's an animal and you can feel sorry for it. And it's like a three-legged dog or whatever. Right. When it's a human, it triggers, I think it triggers something in people that it's like, they need to define themselves as not that. So, right. Well, so let's yeah. Put and this, let's put this person in a cage like Gawk. Right. Because we need to remind, like, I think you said this, we need to remind yeah. ourselves that we are, quote, normal. Right. It was, it like was a, a way for them. Right. It was 100% a way to, like, reflect on themselves favorably in comparison to these people. And I find that in and of itself more disturbing than mm. any kind of abnormality. On that happy note, thank that- you guys for... <laughs> Let's try yeah. to come back next week with yeah, maybe something that isn't so fucking depressing. Let's come up with something a little more lighthearted next week. <laughs> okay. We'll give you guys something fun next I mean, week. I, I we traumatized promise. everyone with my like burnt dick castration cannibal story last week. <laughs> I, I think that there were, I mean, I know that there were some people who uh, were able to sort of project that punishment onto uh onto other people this week onto and certain things in the political <laughs> process and yeah. i know that it brought them joy so uh, that's good <laughs> so so there we go but yeah we'll come back with something a little bit more yeah well we'll we'll do a lighthearted episode next week or at least just not i'm at least just not god awful so thanks for listening do us a solid and uh not only subscribe but rate and review which is actually yeah. quite important Uh, which will help us get get seen by other people because we like doing this a whole lot. We'd like to continue doing it for you guys. I mean, truth is, is we'll probably continue doing it, but it'd be fucking cool if we were, you know, able to get paid. Um, Well, get paid and also just get more people attention. So tell your friends, rate and review us. Post Uh, about us on Soch. (laughs) Yeah. We, uh, you can find us on Facebook at the weirdest thing. Is it the weirdest thing podcast? I you asked remember. me that you the second. This is the second pop quiz you've given me in this episode. Just, um, just, just look for the weirdest thing on both. <laughs> like you'll find us uh, yeah, on, on uh, Facebook and Instagram. 
Mm-hmm. We're still not on Twitter. I promise we'll get on there soon. Guys, I re- like truth, full transparency here. I just needed to get through the election. Yeah. And now, now I'm now I'm firing on all cylinders. I'm cooking with gas again. So yeah. uh, we'll get the Twitter set up. Scotty, what's our email address? Weirdest thing podcast at gmail.com. So is it is it the, is it weirdest thing podcast or weirdest thing pod? And is there a the in there? <laughs> uh, let me double check again. <laughs> this is ridiculous. We need to write it down. We I like that we're like, please help us become a more professional podcast <laughs> and really all of the responsibility. And remind lies us, on us what our email address is. <laughs> if you could send us an email to our email address to remind us what our email address is. <laughs> it is weirdest thing pod at gmail.com. Fantastic. Weirdest thing pod at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Yeah, holler at us if you have ideas that you'd like, ideas you'd like to pitch us for for episodes. We've already gotten a couple. That's super fun. Yeah. Um, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.